there. This is David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. Do you notice I kind of mixed up my little... I know. I was I just, just really thrown off. It was, I just I was really scary. wanted to see what was going to happen to you when I did that. Anyway, this is Close Reads. It's a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Joshua Cohen's The Netin Yahoos. And this is our final episode on that book. It means it's the Q&A episode. You sent in questions. And by you, I don't mean Heidi and, and Tim. I mean you who are listening sent in questions over on our Substack page. And as of the time we're recording this, which is Thursday the 23rd, we had uh, 50 plus questions, which is which is pretty good. And uh, I'm sure more will come in, but you know, we apologize. We can't get to all of them. Um, but we certainly had some, I guess you could say, themes or repetitions of some of the questions pop up here and in, in, in the discussion on the Facebook page. So we'll try to address as many of those as we can. Up next, we have a play. It's not a Shakespeare play, however. However, it is George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion. Tim, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being high, one being low, how excited are you to discuss Pygmalion with us? Seven. Seven point, seven point three five. Well, I'm an eight, so... Oh, I mean, seven point. That feels like C I, range. You're not that excited. No, no. I think I will be more excited once I finish going through the play. It's just been mm. a while. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Heidi, have you read Pygmalion before? I know this is not a Pygmalion episode, but I have read Pygmalion. I've seen. Well, that's not true. I have not read it. I have seen it performed, but not in the movie version. Not the adaptation. The actual stage play. Yes, I've seen a stage play of it, and by got it. Adaptation, do you mean My Fair Lady? Mm-hmm. Yes, I have, okay. of course, seen that because I am a human woman. <laughs> right, okay. Um, but, you know, some people, like, are just wondering if you've seen that, plus you saw a stage play adaptation. I have seen a stage play adaptation well, hold of that story Chicago. because we have to yes. discuss that okay. on right. the actual Pygmalion episodes. Okay. Uh, so that's going to be really fun. So if you haven't been enjoying the net and Yahoo's, you'll enjoy Pygmalion. Um, but that'll be really fun, you know, in part because we don't do a lot of plays, but also that's Tim's speciality. And uh, so that'll be, be fun to let, you know, Tim do Tim let stuff. Him loose. Let him loose yeah. in the, in the, in the field. Uh, Tim, if you were a wild animal being let loose or just any animal being let loose, what animal would you be? A sheep. <laughs> <laughs> No, I no, would not be a sheep. You're a wolf. What's that? I would be. Which, I would be. Yeah. You'd be a wolf chasing the sheep. Yeah. that's what you'd be. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Dangerous, dangerous. Um, do you know that wolves are inc- like really, really, really smart? Yeah, that's why I picked wolf and not lion. Oh, I love it. Wait, are I mean, lions you're definitely smart? a lion too, for sure. You're all of those. <laughs> Like apex predators. Lord. Let's talk about but, something else now. You can only, <laughs> it defeats the purpose of the I question when you can be like, I am all animals. You're definitely <laughs> one of those apex predators, she yeah. said. That was awesome. That's like the best compliment I've received today. Thank you. Thank you. I do you probably, if I'm we'll like, it yesterday. Well, his wife probably said something nice to him yesterday. Yeah, fair enough. That was yeah. nicer than you defer, are an apex predator. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did say to her, like, one day, we have both been a little bit ill lately. We've just been kind of laying around and I, and I, it's hard for me to just lay around. And I was like, you know what? I think I need to frame this to myself as I'm like one of those. I'm like, I'm a lion. Like they 90% of their day, they're laying around. 
but then it's like for for ten percent, it's extreme concentrated energy, and that was my way of justifying my very lazy life while we were sick. Although usually the female lions are the ones that are hunting, so you that does that make you a female lion? No, no, no. I'm saying the female lions are working like they're working ninety percent oh, of the I day, see, I resting ten okay. percent. I'm a male lion. Working ten percent, resting ninety percent, and the ten and the working ten percent is like walking a few hundred yards and then eating. Yeah, to growl at a rival. Right, exactly. Stay away. This is my tribe. Yeah. See you later. Speaking of tribes, let's talk about the Netanyahu's. Um, Nice. (laughs) Sorry, that was a really good segue. Um, We are here not to discuss Tim's uh, animal alter egos, but rather to answer your questions about the Netanyahu's. Of course, I'm sure we'll have much more about Tim's uh, animal alter egos while he's not on the show in the future. There's a lot of different kinds of questions on this book, and I'm going to start with this one because it's one that isn't covered by another question. This comes from Jeffrey. And he says, as I try to process Blum as a character, I keep thinking about the night he finished writing Judy's college entrance essay. It didn't bother him. He just did it like he was picking up her slack for a chore she hadn't been able to complete under the circumstances. In the last episode, you dug into Blum's failings a bit, which shed some light on the essay writing for me. Have his experiences in higher ed dulled him so thoroughly that he knows it doesn't matter that she didn't write the essay? But I'd still love to hear if any of you had thoughts about what the detail reveals about Blum, as well as what it suggests about his relationship with Judy. Um, so there's a couple different questions there, but I I wanted to start with a question about Blum as a, Blum's character, so we can dig into that a little bit deeper before we talk more about Netanyahu and some of the other sort of sociopolitical questions that came up. Heidi, what do you think about this question? I think it's a really interesting one. It's a great question. Uh, So this is one, this book is, it really is very, very brilliant book. And it functions on multiple levels and examines multiple levels of American society and human psychology. And like you said, sociopolitical issues and all that. Um, And one of them, as you've pointed out, David, is the campus novel, right? The skewering of academic culture, just as much as the skewering of any other kind of culture that's presented in the novel. Um, And, uh, and, and him writing his daughter's essay is very interesting to me because it speaks to uh, him. It speaks to one the pressure uh, that's examined in other aspects of the novel of uh, success in Jewish culture from one generation to the next, which I think is not limited to Jewish culture in this era of American, you know, life or any era. But particularly then, it was like get your kids into college, right? And then they'll be successful. There's all of this pressure mm-hmm. to like rise above. Um, and it also shows him, I think, as an academic uh, who isn't as ethical as he probably <laughs> thinks he is, right? Because um, mm-hmm. that's a pretty bad thing to do, especially as a professor. And yet he does it like... As is pointed out in the comment, just in a very offhand way. So I think it speaks to um, or raises questions on multiple levels in which the novel functions. Pretty great that it's all packed into that one small little detail. I don't know, Tim, what else do you think? It was a little off putting that he was writing the essay. It's like, man, this is, you would rage if someone did this and they exactly. were submitting for your college. Right. So that was disappointing. I think um, it supports. The point that David was saying that like 
we're not supposed to really respect Blum, even though that we're closest to him in proximity as the narrator. We're just still, we're, it's, he's not a man that's easy to admire, to cherish, anything like that. Yeah. I read him in a lot of ways, like I read Bertie Wooster in P.G. Woodhouse books. I find him to be, except that he's obviously trying to be funny. He, Bert Woodhouse is not dropping in this sort of acerbic ness that this book has. Not really, anyway. But you don't go come out. You like you don't come out of. You laugh at him, but you don't be like you know like I mean, you know what I I want my son to grow up to be like Bertie Wooster. <laughs> and so because of that, you can't really. You don't really know how to trust what he says. Right? But like, like I don't, the, the narrator who's unreliable about himself and his own motives. Is that kind of what you're Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like you like, at, yeah. we we kind of accept that the all the ant characters, A U N T characters in Woodhouse are cruel and unusual and eccentric rich women who bother him all the time. But also he's a buffoon. And so like you kind of have to take his take on them with a grain of salt. And I think that's kind of happening here too. Like, and this is an example of the book. It's one of those early examples of, of him revealing his true self. Cause at first you're, you don't think you don't realize that you're being directed in this story by someone who is this sort of character and bit by bit, the book reveals that. And I think that that's a bit of the, dare I say genius or create creative uh, one of the interesting creative choices that the book makes. Um, what do you think it says about his relationship with Judy, Heidi? Have you, did you think about that part of the question? Yeah. At all? Um, I, I think it shows the pressure that he puts on her really to make up for himself and his own perceived failures. Uh, and also to show herself as um uh, and to make a life for herself. It comes out of his anxiety for her as well. Mm. Uh, and he probably sees it as an act of love uh, because he he doesn't have that strong uh, moral center that we've all agreed upon. And he also is a bit blind. Um, probably actually not a bit. He's very blind. Um, so he probably sees this as just a way of loving her and a way of, you know, helping her along in life. Uh, and he we he completely misses it and treats it in this offhand manner, which which communicates to us that he's done it before, right? This is habitual. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, even if it wasn't the specific thing, he didn't have to. Yeah, like, he has no qualms about. It. He's like, yeah. and then I wrote her essay, and then I went to bed, right? Like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an interesting uh, follow up question, a little bit down, further down the thread about um, this is from Nolan. He says. Um, I get the sense that Ruben is a bit static throughout the book. And he mentioned that I mentioned his inability to see the world as it is. So he's just stuck. Is that the point? Nolan asks. He says, what I'm really asking is whether Ruben hasn't had any kind of movement. Even Edith seems to have a realization when she recalls how the couple used to take things seriously. Um, and then let me just follow up with this question here from Seth, because I think they're about the same sorts of things. He says, what do you make of Ruben's thoughts at the end of the book? I felt false. My suit, my tie, my pipe, my skin all felt a costume. Is this the only time that Ruben takes his situation seriously rather than trying to numb the pain with humor? If so, could this be a moment of redemption, a moment that Ruben does in fact change? I'm trying to understand my experience reading this book, says Seth. For some reason, these sentences felt pivotal and gave me a kind of footing as I finished the book. It felt like an acknowledgement of the numbing emptiness that might exist in the life of a cynic. 
So the questions are both kind of about, is there any movement? And that's something we saw popping up in on Facebook and in different places. Do these characters change throughout this book seems to be the kind of core subtext of this sort of question. Um, Heidi, I'm going to go to you first on this one. What do you think? And we can look at the specific scene if you want that Seth mentions, but really, does he change? Does there any kind of movement here? No, there is no movement. I think I, I stand on that. I think that the subtitle says that. I think the trajectory of the novel says that. And to uh, the commenter's point, that is part of the point of the book, is that this very big thing that happens is perceived by everybody involved as ultimately negligible. And and that is their perception of it. And that's the way that they have framed it in their minds. Now, to us as readers, we're like, this is not negligible at all. This is a very big deal. Yeah, there's um, like real but, trauma happening here. Right. But to them, or, and particularly to Blum, it is negligible, which means he ends as he began. And we don't have to like that, but we have to reckon and wrestle with that as readers, that this is the perception of a character having gone through something like this and living in this time and place and with all of this convergence of competing forces and traumas on him. And he's, and he ends as he began in this, what he perceives as an ultimately negligible episode, not even for himself, but on a very famous family, says the subtitle, right? So he displaces what he's experiencing onto somebody else and then says it's negligible, which tells us, I think, everything we need to know. Um, and, and I don't think that's a failure in the book. I think that's part of the book's brilliance and genius. We don't have to like it. We can, and we ought to feel uncomfortable with that, but it's there on purpose. Yeah. He's, he does certainly seem stuck. Does Ruben. He's not, he, I, I might even say trapped more than stuck, you know, like he can't go the way of Zionism. He, for the the characters i think in the book that represent zionism i think are pretty repugnant they're presented as repugnant to us and he can't go the way of just pure assimilation either you know there's and it yeah. seems like those around him that are outside of his family won't allow him to go into the mode of just strictly assimilation so mm. yeah he's trapped i i change stuck to trapped i think he's trapped one of the things that i think is interesting that i've been thinking about a lot since we last recorded is the way it's not just that he views he doesn't take seriously Netanyahu's ideology or how whatever word you want to use there's nobody in the book who believes anything that he treats he describes with any kind of respect he has i don't know if that you know it's like the, the, there was a question there, I think, from Seth about is this what it's like to be a cynic? And he seems to have a cynicism about every form of true belief, right? Whether it's his his parents, who are his in laws are assimilators, right? They believe in like the value of assimilation, and they they try to encourage that in Judy. Um, his parents are they're assimilating. They're like in the middle, right? They're sort of assimilating, but they also are going to worship, and they they're trying to preserve some of the religious traditions and, and the prayers and things like that. And then you have the Zionists and Netanyahu and none of these people get referred to or described in any kind of respect by Blum. It's not just Netanyahu. I mean, or his family. And uh, I want, I was wondering if you think that plays into um, 
this is not a question in the in the um, thread per se, but we got a lot of questions about the beginning and historian or a historian. So I'm wondering what you think of his cynicism in connection to his work as a historian. Um, he says, you know, he the the little like linguistic games that he plays at the beginning, where he says, you know, I'm and historian yes and historian and then i guess i'll be historical and he talks about how lawyers don't die and become the law but historians they die and they become history <laughs> and he even references how goys believe in the word becoming flesh but jews believe in the flesh becoming word a more natural rational incarnation and even it's like he's wrestling with these ideas at the beginning of the book but he never comes around to them and yet he's a historian of like what tax taxes and I was trying to think of what what does that have to do? Like, is is Cohen trying to make a connection between what he studies and what and the way that he is cynical about belief? And I don't necessarily. I'm not asking this because I have an answer. I'm just trying to figure out if there's a connection there that can help us understand him. Does either of you have any thoughts on this? If not, we can just say, nope, don't know. So, we'll move David, on. What are you asking? Well, like he spends all this time. To, contemplating the nature of history right what does it mean to be a historian what does it mean to study history what does it mean to be a good historian what does it mean to make history but he's also a cynic about all forms of belief and he is he kind of mocks it so what is the relationship between those things like what is cohen trying to tell us about him and maybe it, it seems like he's put in juxtaposition with benzion who is not he points out writing history, but writing kind of like a, at a minimum, a faith-infused history. Like he's taking some sort of, um, you know, his Zionism, and he is infusing it into his vision of what happened to the Jews in 1492 living in Spain. And so if Rube is kind of, attempting to just do the facts well Benzion is trying to do much much more and what Benzion is trying to do i mean this is this is kind of like the problem with any sort of historical uh interest or yeah any sort of any sort of history you have to operate from a hypothesis to pursue the data that you're researching, that hypothesis for Benzion is very infused with his faith and his vision of the world. Um, but I don't see, for me, I didn't see just the, just his work as a historian, just Rube's work as a historian to be infusing his um, melancholy. I think it was, it's his relationship like to... I think it's incidental. I really do. Because we don't dwell that much on Rube's historical work. I think the whole book is about his identity as a Jewish man. This is one of those books that I feel like for me works backwards. Like when I when I first started reading the first half of the book, Rube comes across as like very self, especially in the beginning, he comes across as like very self-aware. Um, he... He seems like he knows, he sees himself and is able to laugh at himself. He's very attractive at the beginning. And then it's like, and David, I think you said this even earlier in this episode, uh, he, there's this kind of gradual unveiling of him as 
um, as all the things that we've already discussed. Um, and of course, that's uh, brilliant writing on the part of Josh Cohen. Um, also, I think that the tax thing is really interesting to me because when I first started reading, I, of course, assumed he was a professor in the humanities. He calls himself a historian. This is a book about the Netanyahu's, right? Like, so I have a picture in my mind. Um, and then it comes out that he's not a medievalist. He's a Americanist. And then it comes out that he picked tax law tax history, the history of, of taxation taxes, yeah. right um because but not because he wanted to he loved to read he wanted to be in the humanities but the competition was too stiff and he was jewish right and and so he picked this transactional kind of history the history of data the history of uh like dry laws that nobody's really interested in and kind of just to make a space for himself and then disappear in it that seems very characteristic of the of the blum that we get to know throughout the book um but it's not exactly who he presents himself to be at the beginning but i think that the person he presents himself to be at the beginning is who he wants to be and so if we and then he kind of gradually reveals himself um, and that's really sad. And, um, and so if, like I said, this is a book I kind of read backwards. And so in, in skimming over the beginning of it again today, I found myself just like with this kind of compassion for him that I lost at the end that I regain when I go back to see kind of who he wanted us to think he was. Mm. He, there's this line at the beginning where he says, I'd like to think my profession has made me more attuned than most to the selective use of facts. Right. And the way that each age and ideological movement manages to cobble together its own tailor-made chronicles to suit its aims and flatter its self-conceptions. And he kind of goes on. I think that's a fascinating line. Yeah. Given the way the book then evolves, the selective use of facts is basically what he presents, right? And then... He, it's what he presents as tell, through telling the story, you mean? Right. Like he's only, he's presenting, like even telling about Netanyahu or about his family or whatever. There's a selective use of facts, which is what you do when you tell a story. Right. But like you, every story is essentially biased in, to some degree. And I think the book is kind of self aware about that. The book is more self aware than our narrator is about that. For though. sure. Um, we we got to kind of move on here. Um, Heidi, I just want to, Melissa asked a question. It's a two-part question. I think I know what you're going to say about the first part. She says, is there any redemption in this book? I don't see any, and that left a bad taste in my mouth, specifically in regards to Reuben and just how horrible of a father he is, even down to the subtitle of the book, calling it neg negligible when it was horrendous for his daughter and wife, to your point. Melissa then asks, what is true, good, and beautiful about this book? So, so is there any yeah. redemption? What's true, mm -hmm. good, and beautiful? They're kind of two questions. They are. Different. No, there's no redemption. However... We, as readers, we bring the good, true, and beautiful to this book, right? We bring it. It's not hidden under a rock in the book. It really is a sad book. It's dark humor. It's sad story told funny, right? That is, to use Jonathan Rogers' brilliant um, definition of dark humor. I love that. And that's what this book is. And so if you're going to look for the good, true and beautiful and dark humor, you're going to have to find it in yourself, not in the story. And, um, and, and that's, I think 
completely possible. Like, yes, we bring that. We can look at it with, we look at these characters with compassion. Uh, we can look at what they, the, the ideas that it represents. And this, like, these aren't, these are characters that aren't just recognizable in a literary sense, but exist out in the world and are suffering like this. And so we, we have the responsibility then as we read these books to, to have some compassion, even if it's not our cup of tea in reading it. But I'm with you, Melissa. I'm like, yeah, this is a tough book um, in terms of finding some kind of moral plumb line, but that's not necessarily the point of reading. Like we need to find that in... Um, if that's our only criteria for reading, then yeah, this book fails, but there's other criteria for reading. Some of it's just to get to know what's out there. And this is a book that does that. Tim. Yeah, I think reading this book as primarily teaching a moral lesson, and I know that's not what Melissa is asking, but if I think that needs to receive this is a, for me the more i think about this book it's a question about um what's the nature of the jewish identity in america at this particular time after world war ii and that's the kind of very specific question and then it asks kind of a secondary question and tertiary question the secondary question being well okay what is the nature of being a jew broadly in somewhere where that is not your homeland given the history of the jewish people and then maybe like the most philosophical question is just about identity, period. But I do think that the moral questions um, or the moral kind of vagaries of this book are can kind of get in the way if we're if we're trying to read this book first as instruction about how we ought to live our lives. Uh, just one more thing to add to that is that this book is not gratuitously wicked, right? Like it's not just throwing out a whole bunch of unpleasant characters for no reason at all. Like there is a, there is a profound, uh, as you said, multiple layered uh, set of questions that were given from a very earnest and gifted and brilliant novelist. Uh, and it, I, I think we ought to take that seriously. This isn't just a book that's supposed to make us laugh at sad things. Like there's, there's real, uh, there's there's a real honest, and I think good in every sense, wrestling that we ought to bring to this book. I think th I've been thinking about how how people approach books like this mm. or books in general. Same. I think a lot of people who are a lot of us who are Christians or come from a kind of any faith tradition have a tendency to say, I'm trying to remember how you put it a second ago to say that we want like to be edified by books, but also not to moralize them. But then as soon as they present things we don't agree with, we have a tendency to look for Recoil. a moral. Right. And that's interesting to me. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's interesting. On the other hand, what a lot of people will do is they'll go read, say, a Colleen Hoover book, which is a psychological thriller, and it's very popular, and tons of people are reading it, and it's full of they're full of super dark, bleak things. 
but be, they just kind of linger in the bleakness and we don't think anything of them. And so we get way more critical of the experience of reading books that present dark in a subtle way and ask us to actually think about them, uh, think about its existence. And I, and it's difficult, I think, for people who, who, who like believe in a moral plumb line, to use your phrase, to approach things that are subtle about that. That's, it's not difficult for us to do with books that are just aggressively dark and we know they're just for entertainment. And we like right. don't judge, I don't know which one I said first now, we don't judge the former <laughs> um, the way we judge a book like this. I just find that, I find that fascinating. Um, but here's my- I wonder, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I wonder if I wrote my because, questions down, so I'll come back yeah. to them. I wonder if that's because- psychological thrillers, mystery novels, detective fiction, no matter how dark they get, they, and I haven't read Colleen Hoover, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, and I know you're just using her as an example, yeah, but I wonder if that's popular, because that's they're comedies in the end, right? Like there is that the perpetrator is always discovered and there's, there is some kind of lingering sense of justice that we just don't get in this book. And that's troubling. And, and I think. Or you just know, even if you yeah. don't, you just kind of know they're evil. Right. And so there's like, people are willing, and I think rightly so to forgive a lot of darkness in the middle of a story, but not at the end of a story. And I, I think that that's, because we do long for justice. We do want the harmonizing at the end of the line of dissonant music. And, and this book intentionally leaves us with the dot, dot, dot. And that is hard. And I think to your point, David, especially for Christians, but I think it's saying something really honest and really true about the experience in the world, which is in, in a world like this, not everybody feels like they're going to get a dot, dot. They're going to get that harmonized. And this is an honest exploration of one culture and several individuals experience of that. And we, I, I think it matters a lot that we meet that on with the good, true and beautiful in us, but also are willing not to just dismiss that as wicked, but to allow it to be troubling to us because we have the good, true and beautiful, right? And so, and that doesn't mean everyone has to like this book. I'm not advocating for that or even read books like that. But if, and I said this before, if S. Lewis says, read 10 old books for every one new book, every once in a while, you got to pick up a new book and you got to deal with the fact that that's out there. Hey, Tim, when you think about the notion of like a book having redemption in it, like what does it mean for a book to to have redemption in it? It seems like the negative plight of the protagonist is turned from darkness um and you know maybe toward the light that's the simplest statement that i could make about that not particularly profound can you can well how do you do you agree with that or do you want to add anything to that yeah i think that's right i mean we want the monsters of the story to be killed whatever the monsters are that's what we want when we get to the end of a story um and you know if the monster is an actual monster we want that dragon dead in the night killing it if the monster is something more subtle like depression or or oppression or or a upheaval in a family we want to know what happens and that there is a thread of justice a thread of closure a thread of forgiveness or repentance or whatever it is like we want blum to reach out and hold his wife and be like i let's let's figure out how to fix our marriage 
Judy, I, let's let's help you. Right. We want that. And we don't get it here. And so that's me, hard. Well, let me ask this then. Why does why do you think Cohen made the choice not to give us that? Why does it end in this sort of static, you know, stasis in this stasis? I'm trying to think of the right word, but with this mm-hmm. stasis. Why is he did see the feel that is necessary? It feels to me because the the Bloom family is damned if they do and damned if they don't. It seems, and that's the situation that it feels like to be Jewish at this time and in this particular culture. It's like, you know, I can't win if I go in this direction. I can't win if I go in this direction. What, so what do I do? What do I do? And to give a clear direction, I think, is to kind of dissolve the dilemma. And I do think that our author wants to not dissolve that dilemma. And I think that it, from my impression, that dilemma is still, uh, I don't think it's as present today in the Jewish community in the United States, but I think it's still there. I think it was really, really present um, at the time that this book is covering. So if that's true, and Heidi, you can jump in here too, which I think I agree with, isn't it possible that you can have redemption in a book that's, that is presented or offered outside of the action of a book? Like mm-hmm. with the way you guys are both describing, is there some sort of movement from darkness to light? And I know that I'm... Like that's a caricatured way of saying what you said, which was also a two sentence. That's what redemption is. You mean? Yeah, redemption. Sorry. Yeah. All right. So, isn't it possible though then that in the asking of questions, in the positing of ideas, in the presentation of dilemmas, the wrestling with those and can actually be a redeeming, a, a sort of redeeming quality of the book? Um, I think that that is. I mean, this goes back to some earlier conversations we've had on other podcasts, which is what makes a satisfying ending, right? Um, I think, yeah, in the sense that it's fun to wrestle with ideas and that it's a really human thing to grapple with unanswered questions. But I also think that that doesn't make for a satisfying ending in a novel. It makes for maybe a an unflinching one or a uh or a brave one or an honest one or whatever but it's not like there it's not satisfying in the sense that we have an expectation of a pattern of a story and an underlying belief if you are christians that there is such a thing as redemption forgiveness restoration not only possible but absolutely happening in like that history is converging towards something right and 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 we want whether you're christians or not we want a mitigation of the suffering of characters we care about and when that doesn't happen it's disorienting and disturbing to us that doesn't mean it's not important and uh and and this is a really good novel. And he made the right choice as far as I'm concerned in how he ended this novel. I think on a literary sense that that was the right ending. Um, but it it is distressing. And that's in, that's purposeful and troubling. We, we could keep going on this. I've got 
so many questions to, to follow up with there. But um, there's a question here from Hannah, which is not unrelated to this. And eventually we need to talk about uh, the idea of writing about people who are living, which is a big question that came up. Hannah says, now that Heidi and Tim have had more time to think about the book, I'd like to hear more discussion on what makes this a great book because I'm missing it. I know that we're talking, we've been talking about this, um, mm-hmm. but she said, I found it funny. There were lots of interesting contrasting opinions and thoughts playing out among the characters and the prose was great. However, the ending killed it for me, which on the podcast you mentioned is a great ending to the book. It bothered me that none of the characters changed at all and they were all pretty unlikable. It's things we've been talking about. I don't know that we've solved Hannah's problems though. Some of the scenes, especially the scene at the Blumhouse when the Netanyahu's first show up really echo episodes of The Office, which is a favorite of mine. But I think what makes The Office work for me is that underneath the humor, sometimes extremely cringy humor, there's a real center to the show and the relationships, some of which are actually taken seriously and held up as valuable and good. I don't see that in this book. Tim's question on the second episode about finding the center of the novel rings true for me still because I don't see it. C.S. Lewis, when talking about Austen, says, unless there is something about which the author is never ironical, there can be no true irony in the work. Is there a hard center here that I don't see? Or is this quote too narrow or perhaps inapplicable? Or is this a flaw in the book? This isn't meant as a fighting question. I'm genuinely hoping to see the light. (laughs) So maybe she's struggling with the same thing that I was struggling with, like she said in episode two. Mm -hmm. I, I... so what is the center? Know. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's something I've already said. I think it's the dilemma of being Jewish in the United States at this time. Like I think that's the center. And I think and and that's not really that's not a value. It's not justice will triumph at the end of our days or mercy is, you know, better than punishment or something like that. It's not a value statement. It's just kind of, here's the dilemma. Here it is. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. This is what it sounds like. And when you close the book, I think what makes the book great, in addition to the humor and the prose, is I feel like I know better what it's like to be Jewish in the United States. Mm. And it makes me sympathetic, really sympathetic. The couple of Jewish friends that I have, I kind of feel like, man, I know you better. Not because I've talked to you about this. It's kind of a difficult subject to broach, but because I read this book. Mm. This book offers us a dilemma that to your point, and I think, I think you maybe have put it this way. It's not solvable. Mm-hmm. Like the book can't solve the dilemma that it's presenting. Mm-hmm. So if it comes to the end and tries to solve it, then it's not being true. Yes. Yes. And if you get to the end and it's not solving it, then it is inherently not going to be satisfying from a pathos perspective. Yeah. That doesn't mean it can't give you, teach you to be more empathetic or help you be more empathetic or be intellectually stimulating. There's any number of ways that a book can be stimulating, but we we get, you know, it's so it's so easy and rightly so to be wrapped up in the pathos of a book. And when the dilemma can't be solved, the characters are left in this stas- this, this stasis and our pathetic, you know, I'm using that, I'm not using saying like we're pathetic, but our, like as in pathetic fallacy, our drive for uh, um, like satisfying pathetic ending can't be met. It's just impossible. Um, but that doesn't mean that it can't be satisfying in other ways. I think this book is just like, because it's giving us a dilemma that's not solvable, it's, we have to look somewhere else and it's teaching, like it's just telling us it's something else than what we're used to. I think I agree with everything you're saying, except for, I think that there is a solution to their problem that 
the author doesn't have, which is to be Jewish means to be religious. Like, and that's why I would argue this is a nihilistic book and strongly argue that. But I also think that to your point, David, that to write the book that Cohen, uh, to give us the full depth of the dilemma that he sees, he had to give us this book. And it would be completely false if he ended it based on the underlying assumptions of this novel, based on and based on the characters within it and the experience that they're having, he couldn't tie it up in a neat little bow. It would not have been a good novel. And he had to give us an insoluble dilemma. Um, and he intentionally created that sense of disorientation that we have. However, I think Hannah, I think everything Hannah said in her comment is completely right, 100% right, that there is nothing that, I, whatever, did she quote Austin there about the irony? No, Lewis talking about Lewis. Austin. That's right. I think she's right about that. And I think that's what Tim was looking for. And I think that's the thing that's missing. But I think it's not just missing in the novel. I think it's missing in the novel's author. So how could he put it in there? This is where I think you have to think about things on a meta level, though, because I think the book is essentially fully ironical. Like in terms of the drama and the writing, I, I just think it's like you have to look at it in different spheres and that it's I don't, we don't have time to get into, into this really, because I think that, because I don't have time to, we don't have time to sit here and listen to me think <laughs> uh, how to say what I'm thinking. I think there's an, I think the book at its essence is not ironical. I think it's presented, presenting it in an ironical wrapping. Um, but doesn't that make it even sadder, David? What's it? Like the, the novel then. And that's what I'm trying to say is that I agree with you. I think that's right. But I think Cohen himself has absolutely nothing to speak into the void that he's presenting. He's not standing on any ground from his, he's floating along with the characters themselves. Well, are we getting a little bit into like authorial intent when we talk about something like that? And we would have to talk to yes. him about that. I mean, I've read a bunch of interviews on what he said, and what he says is essentially what Tim said. I'm trying to say what it's like to be Jewish in America in a secular way. Yeah. <laughs> David, that's not satisfying to you. I mean, I just don't agree with Heidi, so that's fine. <laughs> I don't, I just, I, I like what he's saying there, what that, that saying doesn't, doesn't to me defend the idea that there's no like moral plumb line to the book. Wait, say that again. The, the notion of the dilemma itself to me is like, is evidence of a moral plumb line. So to, to use her phrase. So I don't know that it makes it sadder to me. Um, I think the, the book by creating the dilemma is presupposing a moral order. And how so? Because if you, the dilemma doesn't matter if there's not a moral order. It's like O'Connor say, couldn't you say, um, it matters because this is the plight of the Jewish community in the United States. And I don't know. I, sure, I, but then the suffering, then the, the notion of that suffering itself is is determined by by morality. 
But we're talking about we're talking about a capital M, capital O moral order. That's the juxtaposition that Heidi has been kind of putting forward that what this book needs is not just a sort of um uh what would you call it kind of like a sociological it's bad to harm other people sort of center it needs a like correct me if i'm wrong heidi it needs kind of a theistic center is what it needs yeah and, and, mean, yeah and it's not and it's not providing that and and and, the, and in that way i think it is actually dishonest because they're talking about a religion but so it doesn't consider at all ever that maybe the religion is true. Is that true though? I don't agree Isn't, with that. Wouldn't wouldn't Cohen say, no, the Jewish people are the Jewish people. It's it's we use the term to describe the Jewish people. When we say someone is Jewish, we could mean they are either someone who practices Judaism or they are someone who comes from Jewish lineage, right? And right, it seems but like where Cohen is that is really in the novel? Focused. Oh, I think that's a taken for granted. And it, well, no, I actually think it shows up in the, uh, the history that we get recounted to us about Benzion's um, research. But the history is presented entirely historically as a sociological conflict between the church and the the community. It's a nationalist history, not a religious one. No, it's a, it's a religious one. Also. There's not, but it doesn't, I don't, I don't know. Like there's no, okay. So what I'm juxtaposing this with is um, what I'm putting this next to is any kind of acknowledgement of community that is robustly religiously Jewish in America, such as is given to us in My Name is Asher Lev, that was alive and well at the exact same time that we are given in this novel. And if we had that, not necessarily even presented positively, but if we had an acknowledgement that, that, that being Jewish in America is not only a... An experience, not only a nationalist or a psychological or a a, a existence, but also a religious one. Even if we had someone who was not presented positively, I'm not asking for that to be presented positively. I'm asking for that to be anywhere in the novel. His parents don't count because what even what he says to her is not about the. It's it's about a cultural Judaism. There's well, they no won't even come. They won't even come because they don't want to for Thanksgiving because they don't want to miss or whatever the holiday is because they don't want to miss being able to go to worship. That is true. Yeah, is I don't true. think it's just a cultural. Yeah. But when he cultural. speaks to her about her nose and the way he treats her is is about their that, cultural identity as but Jews. That's but why that it's tragic like, though because yeah. he is allowing that to over overshadow the faith that he claims to live. That's the closest thing in there. And if I could go back and read it, you might convince me otherwise. But that is... The other thing I think we have to think about is like, this is a book that's sort of... um, I mean, Wendell Berry gets accused of this too, though. Because he doesn't have enough like actual church in his... like Christian characters in his books. Because he claims to be like... And, you know, a, a, a Christian writer. 
we can't, we can't, we can't go too much. We got, we got to move on. <laughs> um, let's have, let's go ahead, Tim. And then we got to talk I wanna, about, I want to dwell on it for a, for a second, because I think that's highlighting the kind of comparison with Barry, I think is helpful because Judaism and Christianity are live known practiced religions and the moment that you kind of um, begin to advocate for one, you are placing yourself kind of in the lion's mouth because of all the potential accretions that go along with those religions. Oh, this character is a Christian. He reminds me of my cousin Bobby, who is just this fundamentalist or whatever. I mean, it's just dangerous, dangerous territory, right? You know about my cousin Bobby, huh? Right. I mean, we all know I want Bobby. to talk to you about your cousin Bobby. <laughs> we all off have the a air. cousin Bobby. <laughs> Bobby. <laughs> we all do. But it just it just makes that territory extremely dangerous to address in a nuanced way. And the people who do it well, it's really, really remarkable. But I don't know. I have sympathy with Cohen. I think that he is avoiding the type of character that we wanted for the same reason, maybe that Wendell Berry avoids the kind of character that sometimes we want. I Yeah. And, and let me just go, lest I come across like I'm advocating for a religious novel. Let's like take Ernest Hemingway. I, I love Ernest Hemingway. I, if you're not exactly in, a religious writer, <laughs> no, and he's intentionally debunking religion several times, plus longing for it at the same time. Like it's right. that has right. that same kind of tone to it. However, I don't think Ernest Hemingway needs religion in his books because he's giving us a culture that is religionless, but not this. That's what I'm saying. But isn't the I dilemma then, isn't the reason that this dilemma? that Tim has suggested is the core of the book. Isn't the reason it's a dilemma is because the religion has been abandoned. Yes, exactly. I agree with that completely. And yes. so to exp the reason I push back on the idea that the book is essentially nihilist, maybe the people are nihilist, but because it's exploring the question of what happens when you abandon religious mooring, even if the author himself is cynical about that. And he grew up going to these Jewish schools. Like, I think right. he is essentially cynical about that religion. Right. But I think he's he also makes that clear being, in his interviews. But I think he wants to write and a he's secular. Self-aware about that, like he's self-aware about the fact we have lost our way, and maybe it's because we our, the religion didn't have the answers. Like I, I think there's a lot. I think that's part right. of the equation here. Right. Yeah. And I guess maybe what you're saying is that doesn't detract. Like that's exactly what I'm saying. But I'm just saying that's not that, nihilistic. That's totally nihilism. But that is, I think, <laughs> like, um, it's essentially I, to suggest that there is, okay, we can, if I'm sympathetic with Heidi here, David, if you can't go back to the kind of Judaism as it's represented in the book, and you can't go forward to just being a kind of like modern person then at, at best you have a dilemma. At worst, you've got kind of like a nihilistic answer. But she suggests that there's a dilemma is not nihilistic. Why? Not, I don't understand that's that. That's not right, David. Like, yeah, I don't David, agree with that. The nature of life why. is dilemma. 
That's the whole but, point of being alive. But, but oh, that's what Nietzsche, like Nietzsche himself, the prophet of nihilism says, this is the dilemma. We want meaning and it isn't there. That's the dilemma. That's the problem. That's what the existential and nihilists were saying. Life is absurd because so you, we want meaning, but, the, the, but we can't have it. So but that, I'm saying that I don't believe that this book comes out and says there's no meaning there. Uh, Edith says. She says that. I know that's the whole point. She says it and it reveals the whole point of the book and suggests that meaning it does exist. The fact that she says it awakens the reader's consciousness yeah. to to so it sounds the reality because like I think that's right I agree with everything you're saying I just think that's so, what nihilism is question. so that like that I, I so but is nihilism I think in the book I hear yes you, but I think what I hear you saying is like is part at least partly I mean maybe it is just a just distinction of the term or we need to define the term but I also think I hear you saying, don't dismiss the book just because of that. Like, well, I'm definitely saying be- that <laughs> for sure. And I agree with that. Like, frankly, most of my favorite books are essentially this. nihilistic. So, right. You know. And that's okay. Like, that doesn't to say a book is nihilistic is not to say a book has nothing to offer or that it is. It's, it's just to say it's a book that exists in this modern space that is characterized by everyday nihilism, as Father Sarah from Rose says. Nihilism is in the air we breathe. Flannery O'Connor said that. It is in the air we breathe. It's impossible to write a book in this from a secular perspective that does not have nihilism woven into it. And and that, I think, is part of the pathos and even the brilliance of this novel, but it's inescapable. Okay, my final thought here is I totally agree that nihilism is woven through it. But my argument is that even though nihilism is woven through something, doesn't mean that the essence of a work is fundamentally nihilistic. Okay, fair enough. But we don't have time to go further. We got to talk about this idea of writing about people who are alive <laughs> because yeah, we got yeah. like a gazillion questions. Russell says, um, uh, "Sorry, um, my question boils down to how soon is too soon." Um, do connections like this undermine your affinity for a work of fiction or you can put them aside? He refers to identifiable personages. personages. Um, there's a reference to Bellow, and that's another thing that this book is following in a long line of uh, 20th century Jewish writers, which help to understand it. Um, Roth and so forth. Um, Helen says, I have a problem with the use of real historic individuals in the book. Why isn't this considered slander? I cer- it certainly put this family in a terrible light that had nothing to do with evaluating the truth or falsity of Netanyahu's academic research. Found the experience of reading this defiling. Um, says Amy, I've concluded that I'm not all right with using a real person in the underage sex scene slash aftermath at the end of the book. Um, I try to think if there's any other versions of this question. The point is, what do we think of the idea though, of using real people? No. That character's dead, though. Yeah. And has been for a long time. But that's beside, kind of beside the point, I think. Well, and is a martyr to the Zionist cause. Like one of the most famous deaths in the mid of, of the 20th century. Right. Jonathan Netanyahu's, I mean, he, he is a hero in Israeli culture. It's certainly, it is dangerous territory. Right. It is very dangerous territory. It's like he, he's walking where angels fear to tread. Not yeah. slander, though. And I don't just mean like legally, I mean mainly ethically. You are. Oh, yeah. 
you are it's just you're gonna say something about someone who is alive and you're gonna attribute certain actions to them which they maybe did according to the afterward maybe they did these (laughs) things but it's just kind of a hearsay kind of testimony so i would never write a book that included characters especially if the characters were um doing performing the sort of actions that are performed in this book for sure i'm just going to come out and say this full disclosure one of the things i like about this book is that it pushes things so close to the edge and it's taking serious risks and i appreciate that and so I like that it's trying to do this and that it's risking litigation and all those kind of things. I just appreciate that he is dumb enough and slash brave enough to try it. So I want that needs to just be out there. And that's part of what I like about it. And I know people are going to hate that. But Heidi, what's the difference between this and The Crown? Oh, I think The Crown is a lot more. Um, um, I know that actually the royal family really hates that show. Yeah, they do. And they tried to bring litigation against it. And they view that all the characters except the queen are portrayed in terrible light, like Prince Philip. Right. So maybe nothing. um, But also, it's a little bit more, I want to say fair and balanced. That makes me sound like Fox News. But (laughs) 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 Um, that they're... they're, The characters in The Crown are maybe a little bit more nuanced. It's not dark humor. It's... But... In in a, in another way, maybe it's exactly the same, just maybe a little less extreme, and it is dangerous. And I don't know. Uh, t- to your point, Tim, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Yeah. Um, because now that's just permanently in my head about someone I previously respected, in terms of Benjamin Netanyahu, for sure. Didn't agree with him, but there's a lot that I respect about him. But now this is what I think of him. And yeah. I can't get that ever out of my head. And so I um I I don't know. I hadn't really thought about that until this moment right now. Because I've just hmm. been thinking about it as a book and as a novel. Yeah, right, right. As a piece of fiction. But now I realize how now this is will always be in he, my head. And he, he knows that. that. He knows what he's doing because like you know how a lot yeah. of books will just say, This is this is a novel. You know, all he does is put at the book, this is a novel. And it's mm-hmm. very small and it's in the copyright. Like you have to look for it. He knows this is going to bother people. And he's kind of like poking at, at that instinct in people. Which, I think my favorite part of the book is the la- is the extra credits. At the end. <laughs> the like afterward, which yeah. may or may not be earnest. That email was made me laugh my head off and I loved it. <laughs> Hey, do you know who the first author, do you know what author kind of invented, for lack of a better word, historical fiction as a genre? Um, I actually do know this, but I think I do, but I can't Mark think Twain? of who it is. Yeah. No? Earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Earlier than Mark Twain? Uh, Mark Twain. Sir Walter Scott. Oh, yeah. That sure. makes sense. Do you know yeah, where I read that? Where Ivanhoe. Bob Roy. Yeah. Do you guys know where I read that? Nope. I read it in that book. That was one of my top favorites. Oh, the Scottish book? Yeah. How the Scots Uh, invented the modern world. Just an opportunity. Just an opportunity to rep it. Yeah. Nice. Good job. They invented historical fiction. I see what you did there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The world's never been the same since. Never. I think the big difference here between this and the crown is is POV. Uh, you bring the point of view, the camera brings the point of view, and it this it just sort of tells its story there, and you kind of get to judge it how you want to. But here, 
the point of this book is that you have this disturbed point of view. So you're getting historical character and the actions that are presented are no less complicated and, and slanderous than what's in the crown. But the narrator here is, is altering the way we perceive it. And I think that's why we, it comes across, you come across as like, if you have any sympathy for the Netanyahu's, then you're going to be angry. And if you're, you know, against their, their sort of mission, their project, then you're going to, you know, not be angry. <laughs> um, I don't follow the distinction though, that what the camera does in the crown is somehow different than what Bloom does because Bloom has what, like an interior narration going on. Yeah. Like he, he himself is cynical and caustic and necessarily ironic and, um, is coloring the way you see it. Whereas, but he, but he's not coloring to the point that you're like, Oh, maybe the Netanyahu's were actually pleasant people when they come to visit his house. I mean, it can't sure he's cynical, but he's still reporting real actions that occurred at his house and afterwards. Mm, I don't think that's true. I mean, I think, yeah, so you don't think that like they were, I think that's kind of one of my whole things about this book is I think that a lot of it is not, is not reality. I'm not saying that like things didn't happen, but I think he's interpreting them and seeing them in ways that are not reality. Can you give us an example from yeah. the novel? Well, I think like, I think, it, I guess what I'm saying is he has a this degree of bias, which makes him like, I think, you know, um, his view of, of Netanyahu is not necessarily, and his, his ideas is not necessarily consistent with how other people feel about him. Um, you even get like the stuff about the shoes and he's constantly just like being disgusted by them. And so everything that he, he views them as is colored by that. And even at the end, he views this, the scene at the end, he views as being, he's angry at, uh, uh, which one was it? Which boy? The oldest boy, the um, old Jonathan. Yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, he's he views that as being his fault, and he chases him out to the snow. And so, like all every scene that happens, I don't know that you can act, actually view his perspective as being. Um, I don't want to say inaccurate, inaccurate or accurate, but as being a tainted, slanted. I think it's, yeah, I think it's tainted. I think it's slanted. I think he's well, not I, a yeah. trustworthy judge of of these people. I, I agree with that. I, I still but think that's different that than like, when you're watching a show. Yeah. I just don't think that his um, kind of jaundiced views of the Netanyahu's was such that he painfully misrepresented them or, or egregiously misrepresented them. I think he kind of represented them. Yeah. With a jaundiced view, but I still think any of us who had them as house guests, I don't think we'd be like, Wow, that was a really pleasant visit with charming people. <laughs> Probably not, but do they give them a chance? I guess is the other part of it. Do they give? Does who give who a chance? Do Bloom and he's, he's biased against them from the beginning, and they're they're such they're very unpleasant too as hosts and hostesses. Yeah, oh, so yeah, it's just, you're but right. It's, it it's, a, it's the Netanyahu's. The Netanyahu's. They take the cake. Yeah, <laughs> and right. They would. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's all very. There's been some comments in here of Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, and Larry David being. And he and he talks about them in the book in the beginning. Yeah. About having read them. 
Yeah, yeah. Gives him a shout out. Um, uh, let's see. Um, why do you guys think Trisha wants to know why you think this book won the Pulitzer Prize? You want to answer that while I'm um, look, well, looking? Well, I think. Here? I mean, I was actually going to say I think you already explained that really well, David. Um, and then say that's all. But I will. <laughs> I will talk while you look for another question. I think that he. Go ahead, Tim. I. I this is a little unfair because David is looking up, you know, what the next question is going to be. I think this is what's going on for this book and David. I think David really likes this book. I think it brought him tremendous amounts of pleasure. And I think that he is ex post facto coming up with the reasons that he liked the book because he, <laughs> there's like, he's had to adopt a bit of a defensive posture because it's not been the most popular book with our listeners, Right. And I think well, I knew that, that was just going to be true. I think we should just let David enjoy the book. <laughs> I totally agree. That defeats the purpose is, of this a podcast. Great, it's a fun book to read. After like yeah. the first three chapters, when we did the second reading, I was on the roller coaster and I was enjoying it. Yeah. I really liked the letters at the Which beginning we didn't talk about Netanyahu. Yeah, I really liked those a lot. I thought they were hilarious. And I thought it was such a smart way to give us um, insight into this polarizing, into like the world's polarizing experience with this figure and their family. Um, and how on the one hand, you had someone who like just turned him into this modern day political messiah, right? And uh, described his wife as charming, which is really hilarious once you finally meet her. And um, and then this other character that tried to say they were being fair, but then completely skewered um, Netanyahu, which later we learned he was probably right, but he kept saying how fair he was trying to be and I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. And you know, it, there's just to your point, David. Everybody is telling themselves a story in this in this book, and everyone's telling us a story. And we, as the readers, are trying to sort through all of these stories. Um, that are, and so it is also this meditation on storytelling as an art and how we believe and wrestle with a controversial figure and idea and um and narrative, and not only in the historical realm but in the personal realm. And um, and you and know, I, I love nothing really more than a meta, a meta story. So exactly, and that and that's another aspect of the narrative voice that we never really talked about. And I think that was spot on, perfect on Cohen's part. And it was I thought it was really fun to read. So there's a question here from Jill about whether um, Cohen is a type of Jewish Flannery O'Connor. As Susan said, she thought about this too. She says several things come to mind. First, stories that end with something shocking. Two, meaning that is difficult to grasp if the reader is not part of the tradition. Three, finding meaning in the vulgar or dark episodes of life. Four, seeing the humor in those dark episodes. What are your thoughts? I'm, I would personally, I would say no, actually. Although you might think I was going to say yes, but what Heidi's not uh, nodding. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are several uh, points in that comment that were insightful that are commonalities or overlaps. But in general, I don't think he's trying to be a, a Jewish Flannery O'Connor. I don't. I think that he's um, for kind of all the reasons that we've already talked about. That O'Connor is attempting to shine a light on uh, uh, 
to draw a caricature to draw us towards believing in something opposite from what she's describing, right? And he is, he's, he's just doing this dark humor thing. Could you, could you make the case that Flannery O'Connor uses violence to cause characters to become self-aware? Um, the grandmother in A Good Man is Hard to Find. Wait, no. This is a Forgive book me. about what happens when you yeah, don't have right. someone to shoot you in your face every day of the life. Every that's day every right. Day. That's brilliant, Right, David. she becomes, she comes, becomes aware when she is about to die and the kind of like violence at the end of this book, you could say the same thing. The violence at the end of the book is kind of, it's revelatory in a way and maybe it begins a change that we don't really see take place by the end of the book. But maybe you could say the same thing about Flannery O'Connor. A lot of her, a lot of her characters, you begin to see the change, but it doesn't really come to fruition by the end of the story. Yeah, yeah. I, I think mean, there's like, a commonality there. You look yeah, at I think um, that's right. uh, Greenleaf and basically the last, or, or A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's the last moment. It's off stage that any kind of change is going to happen. In fact, it's after they're dead. Yeah. Um, and so then it, that in doing that, it's offering, it's offering an idea of how change happens or what it means to change. Um, okay, we got to wrap this up here pretty quick. Um, Heidi, there's a question here. Uh, can you offer a few thoughts on duty and desire in this book? Can you apply your theory, your grand theory? Um, yeah, so I think that Lum is somebody who has sublimated duty and desire, right? He is he he is a person who's completely disconnected from his own heart and his own head. Like he's a man without a chest to use um Lewis's term. And when you don't have a meet and what Lewis of course means by that is that a, a a man who has this like emptiness where his heart, where like the spirited part of himself would be uh, to know a, and someone with a chest knows what to fight for and what to long for, right? And those, those are two phrases of duty and desire. What to fight for is a duty, what to long for is a desire. And and Blum has neither of them. Um, and, but I think going over to Netanyahu, um, he has attached those to an object that we is controversial within the story, right? The, the Zionist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is a giant question mark. And his entire theories are undercut. Of course they are by his bad character. Um, and, and in that way, David, that, that is an argument that probably should be used to argue against nihilism in the book, right? That he is, that, that the fact that we cannot divorce his work from who he is says that there is some kind of meaning, inherent meaning that he's neglecting or denying, right? Um, and that's a pretty good argument. Yeah. I mean, on just your side. to clarify this, yeah. like I said, there's nihilism in this book. I'm just of arguing whether it's like a fully nihilistic. Sure. Book. That's my. Um, and yeah, also, it's I more fun that. if we argue about that on the of podcast it is. than yeah. if we're just like, yeah, you know, you know, here's our different agreement. Here's our agreement. I know. I was writing my column on it and I was like, well, David can write his own column if he wants. <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that. I don't have time for that. <laughs> so, um, but, or really long comment. Go for it. Um, <clears> but <throat> that 
I think that the question of duty and desire is in modernity is so compelling because what what is it to provide an object of desire in everyday nihilism, um, whether this book is that or not, right? Like, and what is there to give us something to fight for, a duty to cling on to that gives our life meaning? Um how do we find that in a world that's lost its way? And I'm giving a lot of attention to that in my book um, because it's that's that is the question we're going to continue to find in modern novels is what do I fight for and what do I long for and why does that mean anything at all? And that, those are integral to these characters. Tim, I was going to save this for my kind of final thoughts on this book, but one of the reasons I wanted to do this book so close to Asher Lev end at all is because it does offer not i wouldn't say necessarily a counterpoint but a different perspective on the dilemma of being a jewish man in america right um it offers a different perspective and i think those the perspectives are um interesting when put up against each other i think one of the reasons heidi you thought or or were um it was so clear to you that there was not a um there's not a an example of people living out this religion that is centuries old is because we had just read Asher Lev and we saw people who genuinely did try to do that. Um that's correct. And that's so because right. they're next to each other, it forces us to confront their differences and it like it even heightens the dilemma, I think, that the Netanyahu's is is um, is offering and in that way reading them next to each other maybe puts us allows us to empathize even more with the dilemma that someone like Bloom or a, a Jewish man in the 20th century would be pushed up against so Tim as we end here you mentioned the idea that it helped, you, you know you, you might have some friends who are Jewish and it adds a degree of empathy for you it's like it, it, maybe it, you wouldn't necessarily bring it up in conversation. I think you said, but you know, like talk about these things with your friends. Actually, I think I would be more likely to bring it up now. Mm. I almost have like, yeah, a same. reason to now. But I think, like you know, of course, of course, I could bring it up without having read this book. But sure, sure, I feel like I know the landscape a little bit better now. Maybe the interior landscape a little bit better now, having read this book. If you were to do that, if you were to bring it up with one of your friends who is Jewish. Which of these two books that we read would you be most inclined to use as your like entryway text, your entryway question? Oh, yeah, I think it would really depend on the person's background. If they had That's fair. Yeah. Like my Probably friend smart. <laughs> Paul um was raised secular and then he kind of moved back to and now he attends synagogue with his wife. Mm. Um so I think like Asher Lev might be the way in, but my friend Charlotte just, you know, she's secular the whole way through. And I, I mentioned this book to her and I was like, I really think you'd like it. And I think it would be kind of a platform to talk about what your experience might be. So yeah, that's what I, I, it would, it would just depend on the person. It would depend on the person and it would depend on their, um, what their reading level. No, 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 no. They're they're kind of religious preset. Where would you generally judge Paul's reading level? Is he like a? Is oh, he Paul a, is Paul is really sharp. 
Paul's really short. Do you want to also say the same thing for who was your other friend? No, she, Charlotte. Charlotte, Charlotte yeah. Is she also smart? Okay, I just wanted I'm to make sure. I'm just trying to picture Tim with dumb friends. It's not coming together <laughs> in my head. Heidi, um, my last question for you here as we, as we go is about, for you, one of the things you wish is that the book offered more of, it offers a lot about secular Judaism, but it doesn't present a lot of people who are engaged with the actual religious practices available to them in that tradition. Does that, does, how does that apply or thinking about that apply for you with the way Christianity in America is evolving? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't really mind. I, I, I don't really mind, honestly, the book that we're given is good enough for me. I just think it's nihilistic and you don't. That's why the conversation came up. Yeah, sure. Um, not sure. because it bothers me, right? Um, um, right. You're just defining yeah, it a certain yeah, way. and Right. Yeah. yeah. It, yes. Um, and again, we're probably like, it's a more narrow disagreement than yeah, totally. the conversation. Like, it's more fun to have the broad strokes disagreement. Right. Agreed. Um, but I think that this... Um, that religious identity in America is becoming more and more tenuous. Maybe it's not absent, right? I'm not an alarmist. I'm not, you know, waving any flags to, you know, flee the country. Um, but, but it is true that it is an increasingly, it's, it's a culture that's increasingly comfortable with being secular. Um, and there are waves of people leaving religious faith at all, anywhere in, in all levels of of American society. And we're particularly aware of that in Christianity because we're Christians, right? And and so I think that this book highlights that loss of religious identity uh, that exists across the board. Um However, I do think it's a specifically Jewish book and it would do it a disservice to try to make it representative of religion in general. Um, but I think that we, when we encounter it, we're not surprised at, um, we're not surprised at the loss of religious identity for, uh, for the Jewish culture because we're experiencing the same thing. We recognize that, but this book is specifically Jewish and, um, and we ought to read it like that. When I was reading it, I was wondering if in a hundred years, we're going to look at American Christianity and be and think of you know the way we think of secular Judaism now. If there's going to be secular Baptists, <laughs> secular oh, Southern Baptists, like yeah. are we in a hundred years? Are we going to be in a very like in a just going to potlucks without any Jesus songs? <laughs> <laughs> That's just called a diner. <laughs> It's called the Waffle House. Right. That's no, why you don't. See, that's I've why you don't like Waffle, it. Waffle House yeah. is a secularized Baptist church. <laughs> We've discovered it here. Yeah, it's true. Oh man, what does it say? That, I mean, I I'm hesitant to say it, but like, I still like Waffle House after hearing that. Still want to go, Tim? You want to go to Waffle House with know. me? Absolutely, I'm ready right now. That's why Heidi won't go because there's no hymns nope. at Waffle House. That's right. If there was yep, a little I bit insist. of uh, a, that, is a nihilistic eatery. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> Heidi, the you next time you go to Waffle House, Heidi, when was the last time that you were at Waffle House? I've never been to a Waffle House okay. in my life. And 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 I want it on my time, tombstone. She's gonna have some of those hash browns one day. And she's gonna be worshiping. To come with us. 
And you and and Graham needs to come also. We have We're to go to Waffle House. Graham the next and I time are going to go out Concord. for a really nice dinner. Where while the you guys... Huddle House? You know, <laughs> IHOP. You can Something go to really both. You know, nice. like you can do both. You can go to the nihilistic restaurant. You know how sometimes yeah, you say you sometimes you need to read the nihilistic books too. Because it's like the contemporary book. Sometimes oh, you need to eat the nihilistic. Used to get to me. eat the nihilistic meal, and then you go to the like the cathedral meal. Mm. So, just want to put that out there for you to think about. Until next time, we see you. Think Thank about you. just think about that, Heidi. Just, just I mean, I that. can't not think about it now. Do you think anyone's still listening? I think probably more people are listening now who they're have tuned, an investment. They're tuning in halfway. And, yep. <laughs> Like it's live. Like someone was like, the show's getting good. Turn it on. <laughs> yep. That's right. Now they're talking about Waffle It's house. the fourth quarter. Tim, what any final thoughts on this book? We got to no go. No final thoughts. No final thoughts. He's like, thoughts. get me, me out of here. Yeah. Although, David, I want you to have the last thought. The, I almost said the last final thought. <laughs> the finalist thought. The final final. My final thought is that I love how Tim has no lights on in his house. And he is like, the lighting head. is so dramatic. <laughs> so dramatic. It's like a black box theater over it there. It is like a black box theater. Well, I'll just say my final thought is this. I can I understand I knew people weren't gonna there was gonna be a large subset of people that didn't like it. I think that what, it, what I was surprised by is the number of people that didn't like it because it, it novelistically refers to real people. That was surprising to me because everybody in our audience loves the crown. Um I mean I'm being facetious when I say that, but that that was surprising to me. One of the things that I like about this book is it, there's the prose. I think the prose is is incredible. Um, you know, the it, somebody asked about the Pulitzer Prize, and uh, it's described by the 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 committee who chose that, who voted for it, as a mordant, linguistically deft novel, mm. and I I think that it is both mordant and linguistically deaf in a very appealing way for me personally. But I also find the contemplations of religion and the absence of religion to be really compelling. I found myself, especially the second time reading it, thinking about my own, for lack of a better phrase, religious practices. Um, and I found myself wondering if when I am lax or I lapse or whatever you want to say, however you want to put it. If I, if that's when I'm most, I'm finding myself to be most cynical, most likely to be ironic. Uh, when my earnestness tends to be at its lowest point. And I don't mean earnestness, like, you know, in a sort of sentimental way. I just mean like my ability to see the true good and beautiful in the world, uh, sort of waning. Um, and I, and so for me, it's really good. The, there's so much value in contemplating that. And I, and for me, that's what Hemingway does as well. It reminds me of the things that are worth longing for because they're starving. They're straight, they're reaching for them and they're not getting to the right place. They're not getting the right answers. They're not reaching far enough, but the longing that's there is, is a, is, is a reminder and not everybody has the answers. That's a great artist, but sometimes it's the dilemma. It's the longing. It's the reaching that makes for great art. And the stasis is where I am, right? By not giving us a resolution at the end, it allows me to contemplate what it means to be in that static place, spiritually, culturally, and all that. And if he solves it for you, then you can't, you're not able to contemplate that for yourself. 
And so for me, that is why this book is compelling. And it's why I read books like this. It's why I, I will read, you know, French existentialist crime novels and, you know, weird, uh, bleak, uh, spy novels and stuff like that because it's it's all the same thing but i think that there is a uh a linguist the linguistic deafness of this book is beautiful and it welcomes you into the contemplation and it's not always an easy contemplation like you have to be you have to be willing to set aside some of your own well i was going to say prejudices or whatever but i don't mean the historical or cultural prejudices i just mean your own like issues personal issues because it's going to make you if, if you're willing to it's going to allow you to to stare them in the face um and that's why this book is is meaningful to me and why i th- i think it's worth reading um if i have to give a defense for it um which you know ultimately i don't because the three of us do this podcast and we can choose whatever we want <laughs> that's uh, right. I mean, i'm being facetious yeah. but yeah. it's why i wanted people to read it as why i think it's an interesting comparison to um asher Lev. And why I wanted to read it early in the year. Again, I apologize if you didn't like it. I guess I'm. I guess don't I'm. Don't apologize. Don't apologize. Don't no apologize. Way. I feel bad that you had to spend all this time reading something you hated. But next time, if that happens, I would just say don't read it. <laughs> like, just don't read along with us. It's fine. We're not going to be upset. Or do, and go dive in for the challenge. Right. Just like well, welcome the challenge. I was, I was really encouraged, and and like how many people read this and 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 didn't. Which they made them uncomfortable and they leaned in and asked the questions and and then some of them said, Yeah, it was I'm glad I did. And some said, I I regret it, right? And that just seems like the, the point of reading in community. To your point, if it, you read yeah. this book and you're like come out of it and you're like totally comfortable with the book or yourself, then you're not reading the right writing it the right yeah, way. I you've, think that's right. you've skimmed over it. Um, okay. I guess we're done. I guess we're done with the Netanyahu. Sorry that this went so long, but I think it in a way it maybe needed to. Um, I agree. Tim, give us one thought about Pygmalion to prepare us. I did not prepare you to, for this preparation question. Pygmalion's up next. We're going to read the whole play and then do a Q&A episode the week after that. But uh, how about class? As in class warfare. Mm. Gender too, right? Yeah, I would. I would put class higher as the kind of chief well, there preoccupation. Timmy is Pygmalion nihilistic? Typical male. No, very much not no, so. Not yeah. at all. I just want to, you know, I just felt like it just needed to just be asked. Okay, well, that, that brings us to the end. Thanks for uh, listening. Thanks for sending in your questions. Uh, don't forget to read Pygmalion for next week. And don't forget, of course, about our uh, series over on the the Substack, the subscriber exclusive series on uh, the Ransom trilogy, the Space trilogy, um, episode two on the middle of Out of the Silent Planet is up now. Uh, also, Tim, what's going on over on the Plays of Thing? We've just started a Midsummer Night's Dream with Heidi and our friends Ian and Emily Andrews. It's off to a rip roaring start, and we will also soon drop the Sarah Jane Tim McIntosh discussion about whether or not. The man, the glove maker, William Shakespeare, is the actual author of the plays of Shakespeare. Controversy. So today's the thirty is the is uh, Thursday the twenty third. So tomorrow a new episode goes up. Which episode is is the new one that's going up tomorrow? I don't know. Okay. Well, whatever episode I is know. up, you should go listen to it. <laughs> um, 
On that point of confusion, uh, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you.